rejecting the screen. Noah Kosov out here on the East Coast. Adam Stenko is out West. It's the going ISO edition as we do every Thursday, the long form with all sorts of folks who've touched the NBA. Today's episode brought to you by rockauto.com. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. Our guest today, Dante Jones, parts of 13 seasons in the league and NBA champ at the Cavaliers in 2016. He was the 20th overall selection out of Duke. Back in 2003 from Hamilton, New Jersey, not too far from where I grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Dante, when you were at Duke, did you guys used to pound a beer before big games? <laughs> no, I don't even drink beer, so <laughs> I don't have nothing to do with that. <laughs> uh, no, so I have to say no. No, we didn't, we didn't pound beers before, um, before big games. Where does that story come from? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe somebody else did, or maybe I don't know. I've never, I've never even heard that before. So, did they say that my class and my teams did that, or did they, did they say, "Oh, that's an overall Duke thing"? A Duke thing. I think this. Yeah, I think it's a Duke thing. Yeah. Jay Williams' crew might have started this rumor, starting that they they chugged beers before. But I <laughs> had nothing to do with that. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, we're we're gonna we're gonna cover all sorts of things. Staying with Duke. When was the last time? <laughs> When was the last time you sent someone the video or someone sent you the video of the dunk over UVA? Uh, actually, it was on um, social media about two days ago, I think on Saturday or Sunday. But, um, well, no, um, it, it, was, it was on social media. And people kept sending it to me in my DMs because I think Throwback Hoop posted it. And people post that thing all the time, and I, just keep, I keep getting it um, in my DMs. And you still smile? Of course. Of course. It's just knowing the context of what that was and, and Coach K was on my back all game and I was I was more frustrated than anything because he was as the motivator that he is, he was trying to he was trying to get me get something out of me for, for my younger teammates and some aggression and some sense of urgency. We're in the middle of a of a, a storm at UVA, so it took us a long time to get to UVA through the snow way longer than normal and um and it was like a half-packed arena my, my parents had made it was one of the, the rare people in the stands and me and coach K, coach Tate was going at me pretty hard and that was kind of my like <laughs> um f you to coach because i was just so mad being immature those two teams that you were playing on dante i mean when you when you look back at it now and it's jay williams and dunleavy and boozer and duhan daniel ewing just how talented and how competitive all of you guys were. It's, it's pretty remarkable. What did a, a practice look like between all you guys as you were getting after it? Oh, it was awesome. And it was, it was evenly matched to say, to say the least, because like even in my red shirt year, even when you got guys like Chris Duhon and Nick Horvath and Casey Sanders and um, even Reggie Love uh, was, was a part of that and Daniel Ewing, like guys that, um, well, got guys that that could start on any other team, but their reserves on, on this team. So we we kept that competitive nature going. We kept pushing them um, um, to different extents in, as, as far as being competitive throughout their season. But that was something that drew me to come to Duke. Um, I was leaving a program where basketball wasn't as wasn't as um, for my teammates. I wouldn't take my coaches that, but for my teammates, it wasn't that type of priority as it was for me. And to compete all year round, even when coaches are not around, that's an environment that I want to be a part of. So when I 
took my I actually took my recruiting visit like to, to to be completely honest just to satisfy my father my father made me take my recruiting visit to Duke I had my I had my my sights set on different schools and I took that one first just to get it out the way because my father like put his foot down was like you you are going to take a, a visit to Duke and you're going to look at it and that's going to be one of your schools so I made it first and then when I first got on campus what I what, what stood out to me was how competitive they were in the off season without even a coach being around. Um, and the coaches expressed to me that they, they set up workout sessions themselves. They set up times to compete. They set up times to, to keep going at each other to make each other better. And that's something that I wanted to, that's, that's something that was a high priority on my list, just to just compete at a high level and see what I was truly made of. As soon as I saw that, like that was my, that was my confirmation, like this is the place I needed to be. After a year at Duke and you guys had a disappointing loss against, against Indiana, and now you're the leader of the team the next year, and your team's leading scorer, all that. You guys have this famous recruiting class coming in with Sheldon Williams and, and JJ Redick um, and Sean Dockery and Shavlik Randolph. When that class is coming in, you just described it like you guys had a basically players ran the team in terms of the discipline and all that. What was your role that that second season that you were that you were there as a player and and um, and trying to guide those guys and teach them the I guess the Duke way for lack of a better term? Well, I still I knew I was going to war with some people that I really really trusted and I had um, Daniel Ewing, Chris Duhon, Casey Sanders, and Nick Horvath and it was our job mm-hmm. to basically set the tone um, for these these kids who are extremely talented who who really care about winning who are good people on and off the court. So we knew we had something special coming in, and we, as the the, the veterans, the, the more mature people who had been around greatness and, and seen super success, um, we knew we had a tough job. But it was something that we 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 took as a as as a blessing, basically, to be able to, to help these kids and also compete with such uh, great sets of talent. What did you think of JJ when he first stepped on campus? <laughs> Good question. JJ was. JJ is a dope person, first and foremost, but he was humble, but he was so gifted. And he has an infectious personality that you just, people are drawn to him. He's competitive. Even when he came to visit as like a high school student and wanted to get to, to compete versus us and pick up games, like it was super cool to see a young kid that knew he belonged, knew he had, he had something he could contribute and was, and was just trying to be better on a daily basis. So me and JJ were paired when he first got on campus to work out together. And, um, like, his shooting ability was, like, something I had never seen before. But he worked mm-hmm. super, super hard, like, way above his years. So that was something that I, like, I, I knew he was going to be special. It was only a matter of time. But he had, he had said I had never – it was a shooter that I had never seen before. He could go a week and practice without missing. Like, he'd be an individual workout and, like, put on a show – and that's just like what he does. It wasn't like four cameras or people. It was just like, it's how I shoot the ball. This is what I take pride in. And he worked night and day at it. So when he came, played pickup with you guys, does that, was that common that a recruit would come in and play pickup with you guys? And, and how did you treat the new kid? Well, there will be some kids that come on their visit and choose not to be a little bit intimidated. There will be some kids that jump right in. JJ jumped right in. Lou Alding jumped right in. Um, like those are the people that stood out to me that were like, listen, I want to, I can't wait. Um, and wanted to take on the challenge. I wanted to see where they were at and wanted to see like, like if they could compete at this level right now. Um, and that, and that's, and that's what you respect. 
you respect guys that come in and want to compete and don't care about what their ranking is at that point in time, don't care about failing, just want to keep getting better. I have a question about that, Dante, that's really interesting. So I saw J.J. Reddick play in high school when he was in, in Virginia, and he, I, to, your, to your point, like best high school shooter I'd ever seen in my life. Just his confidence right. was incredible, where he was pulling up for, from, and his form out to like 26 feet was just remarkable. I'm, I'm so curious, though, when guys come in in terms of who takes shots, how is it for all these – you're constantly dealing with McDonald's All-Americans coming in. Like, how do you find – how did you personally, even as a transfer, find the confidence as to, like, where you fit in the offense? And how do the freshmen go about doing that? And, and what role does Coach K play in that? Well, first and foremost, when I'm on my recruiting visit, like, one thing that Coach disarmed me with in our, in our meeting, which um, – most people go into their first interaction with Coach K with with a preconceived notion of how he is and, and, and how he operates just from by watching him on TV, watching his on-court demeanor as a coach. And they think – everybody I've spoken with think the total opposite of what he is. So in our meeting, um, when I came as a recruit, he was like, listen, I can already point to – I think I can point to what, what you're thinking and – and how will you be able to fit in? And as long as you compete, he's like, like I have eight McDonald's All-Americans and I really don't care about that, that tag of being a McDonald's All-American. Like any, everything is up for grabs. You can compete for any spot. You can compete for anything. Like it's an open table. And if you come in and compete like I think you will, there will not be anything to worry about. I haven't promised anybody any time. I haven't promised anybody a, a role of doing this. You guys are all talented. You have to find your way. Um, and do the things that have brought you to this point to be successful but keep getting better and finding different ways to, to be effective. But if you compete the way I know you can, you will have a role and, and a, an opportunity on this team. And that's all I was asking for. I, I wasn't looking for a starting position or to be the leading scorer. I just wanted to be a part of something special, a collective, a collective effort of, of trying to win at the highest level and to showcase off my skills and, and, and to be with people that were going to compete at the same level that I did. So as far as freshmen, they come in um, – knowing that they do something extremely well. And you have to be able to learn at a high level and be committed to learning, but also to be, a, be committed to competing at a high level as well. Like those two go hand in hand, learning and competing. And if you're willing to do that, there's nothing but good things that are going to come from it. You're going you're gonna to find your way. Um, you're you're going you're gonna to be able to be successful. A lot of folks will say that Duke basketball is a family business. We know that rockauto.com is a family business serving auto parts customers online for 20 years. Just go to rockauto.com, shop for auto and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers. They've got everything, every Hmm. part you could ever imagine and parts that you didn't even know existed. They've got it. And their catalog is so easy to navigate. You can just sort everything by using all sorts of filters and Get the brand specifications and the prices that you prefer. And best of all, the prices on rockauto.com are always reliably low. And they're the same for someone like myself, if I was to do it myself, and professionals. So why spend up to twice as much for the same parts? Mm. No reason to do it. Go to rockauto.com right now. See all the parts available for your car or truck. Right, locked on, L-O-C-K-E-D, space on, locked on in there. How did you hear about us, Box? So they know we sent you. It helps out. Trust us. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. RockAuto.com. 
I was watching um, a clip from the 03 Carolina game in Chapel Hill last night. I don't know if you if you really got Raymond Felton or if he, or if he exaggerated that when after you scored to make it 63 all and then Chris Collins and as an assistant coach and then Matt Darty, head coach at Carolina, they start going after it and they're chest to chest nearly and things almost things almost get ugly. What was it like having a conversation with Chris Collins about that whole incident, whether it was after the game or years later? Um, well, we haven't, we have never talked about that situation, but what, one thing I did know is that my coaches always had my back mm-hmm. and that was a game where I went to halftime and coach K was on my back, super, super tough because I wasn't bringing the intensity and the competitiveness that he knew I could. And this was a, a game that meant a, a great deal to our season. So, um, he challenged me at halftime to come out and like, and turn this up to another notch. And I probably did get Raymond film, but it wasn't on purpose. Just in the middle of competing, it got mm-hmm. physical, it got chippy. It wasn't. I was. I wasn't trying to, to, to hit him, but things happen in a, in a, in a competitive and in a contact-driven sport. So um, it was just. It was just having each other's back at all points in time. The coach standing up for you, knowing that, know, knowing your intentions, and knowing that you just want to win and you're just trying to compete at a high level. Who curses more as a coach, Coach K or Hubie Brown? I would say Coach K. Uh, that's a good question. Hubie uh, may give that to Hubie, but Hubie's a better storyteller. <laughs> you got to say he's had he's had Newell Cinder. He's had like so many amazing people. He's coaching, telling stories, and 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 he's ultra competitive, just like Coach K is. So like when you're dealing with men, your 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 verbiage is kind of different. Like you're not, you don't have to worry about cursing um, at a high level. You're just, just getting out your emotions and your stories and you're trying to get your point across. I give it to Hubie, but right. neither one were like over, over the top with it. Well, I want to get some, I want to get some Hubie stories later on, but go, going, going back a little bit. What were the training sessions like in, in high school? You used to go two and a half hours and train at the Young Men's and Women's Hebrew Association. What were those sessions wow. like? Wow, that's you did your homework. That's impressive. Um, well, that was that was that, that's that, that's the, like the biggest thing my parents actually like tried to help me along my journey. Knowing when I decided that I wanted to be a high school basketball, I mean um, a college basketball player, my parents would basically come from about an hour away at work in that direction, come home, pick me up. So they worked up kind of central northern Jersey would come back to South Jersey to pick me up and then take a trip up through traffic back to Northern Jersey to drop, to take me to the, the, young, the, the Hebrew center to be able to compete. So we spent a lot of hours on, on, on the road just so I compete in AAU because we didn't have a, 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 a like a national AAU team where I was from. So um, when I'd get out of the car, like a little bit spent just from, from driving and stuff, my parents might sleep in the car. But then you get to go into an atmosphere where I got a kid um, named Al Harrington who's like who's at at the at the end of he ended up being number one in the country. But I saw his evolution of just hard work and and like didn't have the skills that people thought he did. But he worked himself into an amazing basketball player. You got kids that 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 play basketball at a high level, super talented kids that are preparing for like a national AAU schedule. So you got, got to see how competitive this thing is because. I had only played basketball in Southern Jersey, 
and they weren't I'm, I'm not saying there wasn't that much talent but it wasn't at that level of competitiveness that wanted to take on challenges like everywhere that wanted to go and show that they were the best everywhere and i had a coach named sandy pionin who had coached some great players over the years and he was super demanding but he let us compete and he let us um do what we do well and actually stretched us a little bit because he let me play a bunch of positions that my normal high school coach wouldn't let me play if you're a six six guy in, in, in high school in jersey you're kind of going to play some post positions because i mean there weren't that many six six plus guys so i was playing mm -hmm. three four five Sandy's let me play one, two, and three. And it kind of like stretched me a little bit to show that I, I'm, that, that, that I am a wing, that I am a guard, and I can do some other things. So it gave me confidence going forth. I've read that Al Harrington's your cousin. So what was the uh, what was your relationship like back back at that point in time? Well, we were the best of friends. So when we met, I, met, I met him, like, I think going into my sophomore year and and just working out with, with, with the New Jersey Roadrunners and playing. So now at that point in time, we spent a lot of time with each other. He would either on the weekend spend a lot at my house or I'd go to his house. And there was one weekend where we didn't have a tournament and I was we, I was trying to get him to come to my house. And he was like, now I got to go to a family reunion. And I was like, yeah, I was going to take you to, with me to mine. And um, and he was like, well, well." So somehow my mother jumped in. I was like, where's yours at? And, and we ended up going to the same place and, and realizing <laughs> that we are related. Like, and, it, and, it, and it's crazy. That's, that's, how, it, that's how it happened. So you got two guys that are best friends and you find out that you're cousins and and you're really related, not like play relations that most people carry sometimes. So um, <laughs> that just made our bond even stronger. And we, we like, I talked to this guy, we, we live around the corner from each other now, I talk to this guy once, twice a week. Our kids are super tight. Like, it's just something that just, just grew into something super special, man. Well, that's so wild. So when you, when you got to the reunion, did other family members say, wait, you two didn't know you were related? No, you're right, exactly. And at that point in time, we're sophomores, so he's not that big of a basketball player. He plays on a nationally ranked team, but he's at the end of the bench. He's 6'9", but he's kind of clumsy. Um, and we AAU basketball wasn't that big then, like, especially to our family members. They're like, oh, we got yeah, we got two kids that play basketball, high school basketball in our, in our, in our family. Or we might have a third somewhere. Um, so it wasn't like that big of a thing, and, and I don't think they even thought that We'd be the we'd be the two two people in our family be to play professional basketball. So, um, yeah, they were just like, oh yeah, he's tall, he's tall. Yeah, I, I forgot to tell you that you had a cousin that was six nine too. <laughs> That's so incredible. How, how far back do you go with Jay Will? Um, in high school, um, when I decided to go to Rutgers, the kid was super super talented. He actually lived before before I, before I committed. The kid was was doing damage in right down the street from where Rutgers was. So everybody knew who he was. Everybody knew the kid was talented. But he also took pride in being from Jersey. So when when I made Rutgers one of my top three schools, he said I'm a, I'm a, I'm going to look at it too. So we ran into each other at tournaments. But it was just he was younger than me, so he looked up to me and Al, and was just always just asking questions and things of that nature. And when I committed. He said that like they're, they're going to be in my top five schools because I really want to do this. So we had a heck of a recruiting class coming in that were ready to commit. Um, some things happened. Everybody didn't come, but Jay Wills kept those two schools, um, Duke and, and and Rutgers, on his list. And I guess he took his first visit to, to, to Rutgers, had a great time. But I understand how 
everything that comes into the Duke basketball program overwhelmed him, and he made his decision. And right before I went to college, actually being younger than everybody else, um, his his team asked me to play in the AAU national cha- national tournament with them because I was as going to college I was 17 and I could play in AAU nationals. So I actually played a tournament with him before I went in in the college at Rutgers. Interesting. I, I remember having dinner with Jay years ago, and he told me about his experience. And it ended up making news years later because he, I think he talked about it on like Stephen A. Smith's show about what was going on with with Kevin Bannon at the time. But it was about the the naked suicides and all that kind of stuff. Um, right. That that uh, that that turned Jay off. How close do you think Jay was to to going to Rutgers? I think he was extremely. I I think he was extremely close because his parents were going to see him play every game. And I think that was important to him. And just taking pride in being from Jersey. Um, Rutgers is a dope place. Um, athletically, academically, like social life was, was amazing as well. But that did shine a, a terrible light on the program at that point in time. And it was actually unfortunate because the way it went down, it wasn't, it wasn't, as, it, wasn't as it was projected. Um, I actually wasn't there for it, but even my teammates that were there told me the story. My coaches told me the story. So um, it just it just got portrayed in the, in, in, in the, in, in the wrong light. And it, it turned from being something that was up for grabs and it was an early morning practice and, and guys had a free throw shooting contest. And I was told by my teammates that the players got to choose what the penalty would be. And when they chose mm-hmm. the running the suicide naked, coach was like, all right, cool. And then the two people that ended up losing, they did it. But they ended up transferring after, I, after my recruiting class got on campus because they weren't going to be able to play that much. Um, so just being recruited over, they felt some kind of way, and the story came out. And then at that point in time, it made it hard for us to get recruits because parents were, were looking at him in a different light. And, I, and I, mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons why like, I, I wanted to compete at a high level, but knowing that we weren't getting the type of recruits we thought we were going to get in because of that controversy, made it a tough decision for me to have to try and uh, move on and see where, where I could continue my basketball. All right, so we started with Duke, then went back. Now let's jump ahead to the NBA. Draft workouts. Did you come out in the draft in, in that famed class of 2003? What was the draft workout, and who were you working out against that you left there and thought, man, I just killed it? Um, well, I, I worked out for – I read this 20 workouts in 31 days. So I was on the road for the last month like leading up to the um leading up to the draft. Um and I mean I, my, my my itineraries were not like Boston, New York, Jersey. It was like Boston, um, Cali, Utah, <laughs> Atlanta, like I was all over the place. And just <laughs> trying to work out anywhere I could, like any any team that wanted to see me. Um and at that point in time I was running into at a at a, on a consistent basis, uh, Keith Bogans, Josh Howard, um, Dwayne Wade, I had a couple times. I, I walked away from my Chicago workout, and I walked away from my Memphis workout against Dwayne Wade. Like, yeah, I, 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 I showed that it, like we, we, we were at the same level. I actually had a better workout than him in Memphis because Hubie actually stopped the workout. It was me, Troy Bell, Leandro Barbosa, Dwayne Wade, and then we got to a point where we played two-on-two, me and – Troy Bell versus Leandro and D Wade, and we were like, we we were destroying them at that point in time. The UV stopped the workout and was like, listen, like we have the ability to trade up. I don't know what you think this is, 
But we have the ability to trade up and like you just not giving it what we thought you were gonna give it, talking and be waived. Um, wow. So that's how I made that, but that's how that competitive that workout was. I'm talking about Alandro Barbosa that didn't even speak English at the time. <laughs> but he was an 18 year old kid, like was super, super skilled and like had a gift. So um, um, yeah, D-Wade, Keith Bogan, Ronald Dupree, Josh Howard, um, those were the guys, like guys like Jarvis Hayes and Reese Gaines, they did not, they they chose to work out by themselves. They didn't, they kind of ran from a little bit of the smoke. Um, <laughs> because I was looking for it. I was like looking, I, I wanted, I wanted anybody. And they, I guess they had got, they had got promises from teams. So they were like, listen, we're not, we, we don't, we don't need to work out again. So uh, I couldn't you, get a, you, work out with bronze. Couldn't get a workout with Mello, obviously, and it made sense. But anybody after that, like I was looking for those type of workouts. A guy that plays defense as hard as you do, and and is as physical and and an athlete like that. That's worst case scenario. They want no part of that. You can you can be sure right. when you're going through that process because there's been so many Duke guys that had gone through it before you, and obviously Coach K's advised a lot of them. Coach K or anyone else, who is giving you advice as to what to do in those workouts and, and what was the advice that guys were giving you? Well, I was off of, like, at that point in time, I, had, I graduated, left school. Uh, well, I, I was out of school at that point in time because, and I was, doing my, I was doing my workouts at IMG Academy in Florida. So I was being trained down there, and then me and my agent were going back and forth. So, so Coach didn't really have any input in that process just, just to be you and to compete and, and do the things that, that like, like you do on a daily basis and, and have gotten us some success. And, and that was only, only input he put in on that, in, in that situation. Um, some guys have worked out on campus, but I have been back and forth to IMG just because of the relationship me and Al have had. Al was in the NBA for four years prior. So he was working at IMG. I was with him and I was familiar with that pre-draft process. And I had been working out with guys in pre-draft before. So I, 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 I stayed down there just to grind and work out against NBA guys to prepare for the draft. All right, so then draft night comes. What are your expectations? The draft night comes. So the day before the draft, I worked out in Utah. And I'm all, I apologize. Two days before the draft, I think I worked out in Atlanta. And then I went to Utah. And so I guess that's a back-to-back. And the night before the draft, I had, a, I had a really good workout in Utah. I'm kind of spent, so that's like 19. And they called me and said, you know, Utah wants you to come back because they want you to work out in front of the – they had a big ownership group at that point in time and, a big, and, a, and, and their management staff. So they want you to work out in front of all of them in a private workout because they're ready to um, commit at the 21st pick. And I got on a plane that night after my workout. And I went to Atlanta, and I probably got in like one or two in the morning with a 9 a.m. workout on draft day. Did that workout? Um, it was an individual, so I had nobody to compete against just to show like what what I do on the defensive end. But it was all like skill work. And I remember finishing that workout, and they and the, the water cooler was at the end of the at the end of the gym, and they told me to go down and get some water. Like, come back. We're going to talk a little bit. And I remember, like, I kind of I had to gather myself. I kind of, like, broke down because it was draft day. And I had been through 
20 different workouts on the road and my emotions got the most of me and I was like physically spent. Like I just didn't have any more. And I had been by myself on the road the whole time. Like, like it was a whole bunch of emotions going on. And, and, and this day is finally this day has come upon us. And I just, I, I just broke down and then I gathered myself and came back and they told me they committed to me at the 21st pick. Like if you're there at 21, we are going to take you. And I got on that plane and, and rushed to New York because I had me and my parents, my parents had like a, a, a hotel room in New York City so I could, we could go to the draft. And I got there probably like 30 minutes before the draft even started just getting through mm-hmm. NYC traffic and all that. And by the time I got to put my bags down, take a shower, the draft had started. I'm, I remember getting dressed. And then I got a call that, I got a call that um, Memphis was going to move up to 20 to take me. Um, for my agent. So then at that point, we rushed to Madison Square Garden. And by the time I got to Madison Square Garden, they had, they had just called my pick. And I went straight back into the, um, into the I guess, the media room to take the pictures and all that stuff. I got to take the pictures, but I never got a chance to walk across the stage. Wait, so, that, so that trade was, because it was Boston that had the, it had the pick, that trade was handled beforehand. You do that you were never going to Boston? Yeah, I knew I was never going to Boston. I knew, I knew Memphis uh, was taking that pick. They were, they were going to trade. Um, they were going to t- take Marcus Banks and Kendrick Perkins mm-hmm. at, a, at a different slot, and Memphis had traded up to get me and Troy Bell. So then, so you, you never got to cross the stage when when that happened, and, and Jake Commissioner Sternhand. Did you? By the time all that media ends, I know it's it's forever. So was the draft over, and were you able to walk across the stage and like let your parents oh, take a picture of you or something? Nah, I never got never got that opportunity. It never. It was everything was moving so fast that I just like I, I, I think I gave up and I was just in the moment mm-hmm. taking pictures. I think we took pictures backstage and, and we did all the family pictures and stuff and all the media and then by the time I got out of there, mind you, I probably hadn't eaten at that point in time. I'm coming from a workout, early morning, flight, a- anxiety going through the roof, um, ran straight to the arena. Like we probably went to get something to eat and and kind of celebrate moment not thinking that that was even a possibility or not even asking I, hindsight of 2020 so i would have asked for that for that for that opportunity but they never got it so you go to memphis and hubie brown's your head coach and that's hubie's first full year and earl watson was on the podcast with us this was back in january i believe and and earl said that when he was in memphis he hadn't been used to any of this losing and bob myers is his agent and Jerry West comes in and he introduces Hubie as the new head coach. And Earl did not know Hubie. Well, he did not know Hubie's background. And he, Earl told us the story that in his head, while Hubie's talking, he's like, wait, they just hired the fucking TNT guy to be our coach? I, I got I to get out of here. And he called Bob afterwards. He's like, yo, man, you got to, I got to get out of here. You got this, I, I can't, can't play for this guy. And, and then obviously it turns out that, he found out who QB was with his basketball acumen and his back basketball pass. What was your first experience like with UB? Um, UB was, UB hated rookies number one. So I would, I back and back then um, the rookies had to come in like two or three days prior to do it, like a mini training camp while the veterans got a chance to come into training camps three days late. So, my first experience with Yubi is on the court, like a demanding coach who's older, who really doesn't have any sympathy for rookies, 
and we're going through a full gamut. Me, Troy Bell, Theron Smith. I think Ryan Humphrey was there. Like I think first and second year guys had to be there. And we're just they, – they're forcing us to go at each other's necks. So when, when training camp actually started, now, like, he was just super hard on the rookies. And – I had, and me coming from where I came from at Duke, like this is technically they, they, they had a problem with me because I would voice my opinion and ask questions on like what is really going on here because this is a step down. And whether it be team meals, facilities, like we really got to do this. Um, like what, what is really going on? We practice at a, at a, um, at a, I think a D3 school. Um, the pyramid was, crazy as they were building uh the fedex forum like it was just it was just it, it was just a tough spot to be in and then you have a demanding coach um that just wants you to just to be precise every practice was the same every day it was just it was tough tough to deal with but hubie was he was fair he was tough on the rookies but he felt like there should be at some point in time the rookies not get hazed but have a tough time to understand that the blessing that being a part of this organization was how did how did Kyle Lowry handle that when he was a rookie there? I don't think Kyle, Kyle wasn't there with, with Hubie. No, no, um, Mike Fratello. Oh, okay. I think, I think Kyle, yeah, Kyle and Rudy came in with Mike Fratello, and Mike Fratello was demanding as well, but he didn't have that same nitpicking of of rookies. So no matter what we did, it was wrong. But we were going to get we were going to get singled out every day. Just to know that you are a rookie, just to know that like there is a hierarchy here. He has he, he wanted you to have respect for your veterans. Um, and I was playing I was playing behind like a crew of guards that was like outrageous. James Posey who just signed a fifty million dollar deal. Mike Miller who uh, who was rookie of the year and like probably had a fifty million dollar deal. Bonzi Wells, um, who else was there? Oh, and Shane Battier who just signed a fifty million dollar mm-hmm. deal as well. So like. That's what I'm playing against. That's why I'm. That, that that's why I'm being compared to and having to keep up with guys who have been here, competed at a high level, all defend, all really take pride in their jobs and not losing it to a rookie. So, yeah, I was given, uh, I was I was put through the gamut as a rookie by my by my veterans and to Hubie just to be responsible. And then after that rookie year, me and Hubie, me and Hubie were were awesome. He was, but but. He just he just made sure that you understood that you were a rookie and that you had to like pay your dues. One thing though you say about Hubie being awesome is that just heard from so many guys that about his basketball IQ just being off the oh charts that he sees the game so differently. What's one thing that and I know there's a million of them, but what's one thing that he taught you that that you had never thought about, let's say before? He could break the game down into numbers to where if you like if you hit like five statistical categories, whether it be deflection. Um, team assists, rebounding. It was, it was it was five specific categories that you would win like 95% of the time. He was such a mathematician and so gifted with numbers and breaking the game like down like that to where like we had us all over the place getting deflections. Just because the team that gets the most deflections by a certain number, they they tend to have the better outcome. Like he, he had that, he, he had broken the game down to like the statistics and numbers so crazy that it just opened my eyes up to, to like how the game can be played. Just uh, I want to get to to some of the other teams you play for, but I'm curious, what's your best Jerry West story? My best Jerry West story is 
first of all, I'm enamored by Jerry West, and it was always super dope every time you spoke to him in his office. But he's always accepting you, and he always gave you knowledge. But um, just being a rookie, um, being worn down by the not playing. Back then, you had the five-game IR rule, right? So if, you, if, if you're on an injured reserve list, you have to sit there for five games, no matter if somebody gets hurt or not. Right until your time is up. So mm-hmm. that rule, you can see somebody go down at your position, but you still can't get the opportunity because of because of the rule. So um, like that started to wear on you. There was no G League at the time, so there was no time where you could go and play, get let steam off, compete. Veterans aren't, aren't letting you in in practice because they're still trying to compete with spots. Um, they're still trying to show that they either should be starting or um or showing their dominance, what, like, because we played two units uh, that played uh, 20 minutes apiece. So, like, they would, he would set out five at a time. And people weren't happy with that, but people still wanted to be in that starting unit. So, people wouldn't let you in practice. People wouldn't let you in. That, that's something that coaches really don't do. They don't sub you in. They, they let you guys figure it out. So, by not playing and by not having be able to play games in the G League just to stay competitive and stay fine-tuned and, like you're just you're just out there as a you're just working out a lot as a rookie, and I, I remember before the game one time I was probably goofing off in 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 um in pregame workouts and I got a phone call I got, a, I got a, there was an older gentleman that passed me a phone on the sideline and it was Jerry and Jerry was like look up top <laughs> right and he, and I looked up and it's him in the in, in one of the top boxes he was like he was like bring your ass up here and. I, I, I closed the flip phone and, and me and Gary walked up and he was like, listen, man, like, I understand. I get it. It's tough, but you have to be a professional. You have to cut the goofing off. You have to use this time to get better. I know you, I know you, like he, he, he understood what I was going through and he broke and he broke it all down. But he was like, listen, man, you have, he, he taught me how to be a professional, stayed on me, like little things like that. All, people always are watching no matter, no matter what, if you think you're in an empty arena by yourself, like people are watching, people always um, critiquing you, your on and off the court demeanor. And by knowing me at that point in time, he was like, "Listen, I know you're a good kid. I know you're just frustrated right now, but you have to just keep this this professional um, outlook on the game for when your opportunity comes." As only Jerry West could say. So fast forward to your year with the Nuggets, oh eight oh nine. How did that AI trade hit you all three games into the season? It was crazy because I was the biggest AI fan of all time, right? And like I wanted to go to Georgetown, like because of AI and all this stuff, like and and I only didn't go to Georgetown. Georgetown wasn't one of the top schools because Craig Escher was the coach. So Big John wasn't the coach anymore. Big John had retired. Mm-hmm. So now that process of me getting on that team was so rigorous and meticulous that like I had to. They were at all. I I had spent like an eight game stint at um. I was actually the year before. I was actually when I got released from Sacramento. We were negotiating with, with Cleveland and Sacramento, Cleveland and Denver on a nine guaranteed deal, and uh, to finish out the season because I got I got released at the trade deadline when Mike Bibby was trading for like five people from Atlanta. So I got a call in Sacramento. I was like, "Listen, man, it's not nothing you did. Like we, we'll be interested in free agency, but." Well, we got to do this. We got to do this deal. Um, we got we got to do this deal. To, um, to 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 get Mike Bibby out of town because we give him a better spot. So um, we were negotiating with 
with those two teams, and I had never been in a situation like this before. So I had basically I had an anxiety attack that, that put me in a hospital. And mm-hmm. my agent was like, "Listen, man, like the doctors were telling me, like, like what do you do to release stress?" And I was like, "I play basketball, and I can't. There's no there's no 24 hour fitness at that point in time to compete at. Like, there's no rec games right now to compete at for an NBA player, like a first round draft pick." It was like, you need to compete. You need to find a way to relieve stress. And my agent, uh, Aaron Mintz and Mark Baldwin at the time, were like, listen, man, there's a place like called the G League where you can compete. And I was like, listen, I'm not going to the G League. Like, aren't we negotiating for, for a deal? And they said, um, man, just take these eight games and just have fun with basketball. Let us work on the, the contractual stuff and you'll be fine. So I actually, I, I packed my shit up and went to um, North Dakota because they had a game in North Dakota. It's two feet of snow. It's wild, but I'm I'm ready to compete. And at every game, I saw a Mark working team there from the Denver Nuggets. So like he was he was at every one of my G League games, and he was like, "Man, we're just super impressed, man. Like, just it, it'll work out." And then they invited me to summer league, and they were like, "Listen, man, we got another kid that that um that you'll be competing for for this spot, but it's a you guys have played 22 minutes a game, and you guys have figure it out." And I remember outplaying that kid, like averaging like 20 points in 20 minutes, um, and they gave it to me. So by the time I get to training camp, like I had worked so hard for this, and went, and like a month before training camp, I showed up to Denver. JR was there with me, um, and he was like, listen, man, we, let's, we're going to Dave and Buster's. Go to Dave and Buster's, and, and, we, and we meet, and AI's there playing shuffleboard and pool, and he would do that every day from like 6 to 10 p.m., and he's like one of my idols. So – like just to just to be have a month of spending time with him every day at Dave and Buster's and, and going out with him and and just kicking it with him like you you got to fall in love with one of the greats of the game and we get to training camp and he hadn't worked out all summer but he came <laughs> in still as AI I mean he got like twenty five jumpers up and came in still as AI dominating and we went through a, a training camp like and you get to see like how special the guy is on and off the court so now. You didn't. You even fallen in love with this dude, and then, and then you hear that he gets traded for another one of like the most pivotal people in your life, Chauncey Billups. So, at that point in time, I had spent like the, the past eight years with Chauncey working out of IMG together, and he was one of my one of my OGs, one of my vets, one of the best in the league at the time. And when they swapped AI for Chauncey, it was like, damn. But I get it. Okay. We got a um, we got one of the best in the game. Finals MVP. Yeah, I love AI, but damn, Chauncey is Cha- Chauncey is that dude too. And he came in with his his professionalism, his leadership, his bravado. And I remember um, a conversation that George and him were having in front of me. And he was like, "Listen, George, like, should we start? Should we start X? Should we do this?" And he was like, "Nah, we are gonna start Dante." And I and I, I'm like, I'm, I, I shouldn't even be a part of this conversation. But he's like, "Listen, trust me." It's gonna work out. You, what he brings on the defensive end, it'll be way. It'll speak volume. And I got my starting job that day because of Chauncey. Before we get into some of those nuggets, though, the fact that you had a chance to spend a month to get to know Allen Iverson, what's he like away from away from the court? Super, super genuine, caring individual. Like he cares about everyone. He will share love and all his resources with anybody that he's around. Like, great dude. I remember my first time meeting him was um, All-Star Weekend, and I was outside of a party. And I was trying to get in line. I'm by myself. I don't really go too many places with too many people. 
But I'm by myself trying to get into this all-star party, and here comes AI with all his crew of people. And uh, mind you, I've never met the man a day in my life. And he loves basketball. So um, I remember he got all – him and his crew of 30 walked in, <laughs> no problem. And here comes AI. He came out of the club, and he was like, hey, hey, Dante, you all right? I'm like, what do you – first of all, how do you even know my name? Second of all, no, I'm not I. He's, he's with me. And then at that point, I'm, I'm he, like, relieved all the stress of my life because <laughs> I, I was kind of embarrassed sitting outside as, as a – probably as a rookie, not knowing anybody to, to get me into this situation. But, like, that's the, that's the genuineness of AI. Like, he'll, he'll give you the shirt off his back. Like, he'll sit down and spend time and share and, and tell stories and just be one of the guys even though he is one of the most influential figures in basketball history. So when, when you fast forward that season to the series against the Lakers in, in the Western Conference Finals, should you have beaten the Lakers or could you have beaten the Lakers? We could have been, we could have beaten the Lakers. I think most of our errors were on our, our part. Like I think it was two inbounds plays tight yep. in the game where we're up one and we turn them over. Um, but we didn't have inbound plays. We didn't have side out of bounds plays. How is that possible? I don't know. And Chauncey, I remember Chauncey being so animate about that all year long. And that's the only one thing George, he didn't really care about. He's like, listen, we can, we'll get it out with just a brush screen. He was like, Chauncey, but we need more ways <laughs> to get this ball side out. It's going to bite us in the ass. And it ended up just biting us in the ass in the conference finals and giving them life. That's unbelievable. I, it's so weird because nowadays we, we judge coaches on their baseline out of bounds or sideline out of bounds. Right. Sideline side out of bounds. And, yeah, right. And I guess that's the way the game is going, just getting easy baskets off sideline out of bounds, under out of bounds, um, just be prepared to score easy buckets off those. But that's one thing that he didn't, he didn't prioritize at that point in time. Defensively throughout those playoffs, you're going up against Chris Paul, you're guarding, and then – and then you're getting opportunities to guard Kobe, and obviously we can get into the Kobe stuff. But, but just what's your mindset game to game, just battling in the playoffs as the defensive stopper for a Nuggets team? You know you guys are going to score, but you're the guy counted on to guard the other team's best player. What, what's the mindset there? My, my mindset was just to do my job, and, and I was happy. Like, I didn't care about shots. I just my, – my, my, my mindset throughout my whole career is to be part of something special and to be able to contribute, right? So whether it be contribute scoring, I'm always to score, but I've always played defense at the same level. And if you need me to do one thing over the other, then I'm with you. Like, I, 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 will, I will get it done. So now they're relying on me and asking me for my input on how I could probably either stop or slow down guys of this nature. And uh, I remember being in a shoot-around um, with George Carl, and, and this is probably one of the first times where, like, he leaned on us and was like, listen, so how you want to handle this Chris Paul kid? Because – uh, he's giving us problems. He's he's dangerous with the ball. And I was like, listen, let me pick him up full court and let's trap him on ball screens, me and Kenyon. And he was like, well, I want to do it this way, but since you're confident here, I'm going to let you go. And and if it doesn't work, we're going to go to my to, to what I think is going to work. But if you think you guys can pull this off, and Kenyon was right there with me, like, yeah, we're going to trap him. And, and since Chauncey was one of the best off-ball, he was he – was, he was better used as an off-ball defender than an on-ball defender. Um, I thought my athleticism, uh, this, this, the physicality that me and Kenyon bring to the game, we could wear him down. And we got to a point where Chris, who was younger, younger at the time, he was 
making Rasul Butler and other people bring the ball up because he just didn't – he just at that point, he didn't know how to deal with the physicality wow. of what we were bringing. I still laugh when I, I look at that box score of game four. <laughs> it's just I mean, it's hard to believe that's an NBA game, let alone a playoff game, winning 121-63. When you were guarding Kobe, did you ever feel at any moment that I've, I've got his number? Well, that was the highest victory in playoff history, number one. And number two, um, everything I had is number, no, that was never my thought. My, my thought was I got I to gotta slow his production down. I have to be physical with him. I have to let him know that I'm here every possession. Um, we never got into it verbally. He never, he never talked trash. He was always a professional about what it was, but they allowed him to get away with a lot of stuff. Which, and I couldn't get away with myself. So that's where the frustration is being younger. Um, just, you know, it's not never going to be even on the officiating side, but you still want some type of respect. So, and then we had our own mantra of like what we were going to allow him to do and what we weren't going to. So our, our mantra of the playoffs is like, we, we weren't allowing layups and dunks. Like we, we have to put you down and let you know that you're not going to get anything easy just because that's what we do. We we're physical. We don't give up layups. So that's what I had to be prepared for. I, I, and, and knowing that he had a lot of counters and he was, a, he was a get, the most gifted scorer in the game at that point in time, but also being a gifted scorer, having plays that, like, magnified his talent to where you couldn't send a double or you couldn't you, – you, 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 he, he was put, always put in positions for him to be successful along with the ticky-tackness of the refs. So I couldn't get frustrated by just the, 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 the things that I just couldn't control. So never thought I had his number, but I but always knew that I could slow him down and just and during my minutes keep him at bay, not for going off on, on, on crazy scoring sprees. And if I could do that, it could help us win. Mm-hmm. When, you, when you had the incident with Kobe where he had – when you injured his ankle or it got injured on the play and there's controversy over whether it's intentional or not, and you said – but it wasn't, and he said it, it was. What I'm most interested by is that he had a quote where he said, I can't get my mind past the fact that i got to wait a year to get revenge. What was the next conversation between the two of you like? Uh, nothing of, nothing had nothing to do with that. And mind <laughs> you, that incident, that incident actually hurt, hurt my feelings more than anything because you understand, like, Kobe's one of, AI, Kobe, Michael Jordan, um, those are the guys that I look up to. So every time I got an opportunity to compete against them, like I was always going over and above because when you're when you look up to somebody, you're like you're just trying to prove your worth. You understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So yep. Yep. So you, you want you want their stamp of approval. And so I've always those matchups always taken them like super serious and always wanted to compete at a high level. Um, and then like when he said that he Jalen Rose me after the game, I was like, listen, number one, I was under a lot of stress before that game because I just got traded from Dallas. Didn't know their offensive, didn't know Atlanta's offensive scheme. Um, wasn't really playing much in Dallas. So trying to work my way back in shape. And then you get a, then you get like right before the game. Oh, you're starting. Cove's coming to town and you're starting because Deshaun Stevenson doesn't play back to back. Okay. So then now. I'm trying to download a full offensive scheme and a full defensive scheme of how we're going to deal with one of the best scorers of all time. Okay, so now I'm trying to figure this out. And then he starts the game off like 0 for 10. He shoots, I think he finishes 
he finishes the quarter at one for 11. So if I was going to hurt, if, if, if you're really going to hurt somebody, you start that off early because you just don't want to deal with 38 minutes of this guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So why would you, why would you hurt them on the, the last second? Wouldn't you just knock him out early so you don't have to deal with him and they have to go to the next guy? So I dealt with 38 minutes of uh, 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 30 plus minutes of just battling with this guy who still, who kind of got hot in the third quarter when I wasn't when I was out of the game and then when I came in I guess he had a tough three pointer on me but now you guys had let him get back in the game I guess Colin and I let him get back in the game okay cool so now I have a tough another tough job when I had when I kept him at bay for most of the game and then we get to the fourth and it's an ISO and I'm like okay this is what this is what, as a kid, like, you, you want nothing more than this. For game, you and Cove, you take pride in your D, he takes pride in his offense. And my whole, my whole job was to just make sure he does not get a clean look, make sure you contest, make sure you get a hand in his face. That's all. So to pinpoint – I know you can slow motion and do a whole bunch of things at that point, but to pinpoint an opportunity where I never even felt him touch my foot, that's why I was super animate after the game because, like, I didn't feel anything. I didn't feel him touch the back of my foot, placing my foot under him. Nah, maybe Jalen did it on purpose. But me, I had more respect for him and, and than, than anything in the world at that point in time. And when he said that, that kind of put a lot of pressure on me and my family because at that point in time, for like another – I was standing in a hotel because I just got traded. We had to have 24-hour security, death threats to my, to, to, to my family members on, on, on social media. Like, it just heightened a bunch of things that never was my intention. You guys ever talk it out? We spoke multiple times after. There's no talking it out. I guess his emotions after the game, he may have thought something, but he let it go. There's nothing that we like we talked about when we saw each other because before he passed, I saw him I saw his um I saw him at a um AAU tournament and with my kids and his kids and he, he had a moment with my son. He was super engaging. Uh, my assistant coach was a huge Kobe fan. I introduced him and he was super dope to all the people around him and he spoke to me, asked me what I was going through what was going on and, and how I was doing. And then we we just parted ways. Like, he was super dope um, the last time I saw him. So we never had a moment of any controversy or, or, or off the court involving that moment at all. Good, good. All right, let's, uh, let's stick with the – and we appreciate the time. Let's, let's stick with the – and we'll get to the championship in a moment. But let's stick with the, the whole L.A. thing. The Clippers collapse in game six against Houston. That's that's the first year of Steve Ballmer, 2014-2015 season. Up 87-68 in game six against the Rockets. What was the what was the feeling like on the bench? What was the locker room like after the game? Um when when they hit all those threes, um we were we, our whole my whole mantra at that point in time was to stick to the game plan and Josh Smith was going under on threes and Josh Smith hit three threes and like when when the, the cast of characters hit all those threes, it was like it was super deflating. But we knew we had to hurt Chris Paul, but we thought we could get out of that funk, and we just never had that same bravado that we had to start that series. And we just we just watched something just fall apart, um, especially at a point in time when we were we were a tight knit group, but there were small things that kind of like made us break apart every now and then. And then at a time like that where, where we're not fully healthy and um, this team is game steam and, and guys are, are coming up with big games, it didn't, it didn't help that 
a small thing could like unravel us and we just never had our same bravado again. How shocked are you that that Clippers team never reached the 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 mountaintop or where other people maybe expected it to go? Super shocked because the only team that, in my opinion, that gave us problems that I thought that we really were going to have a tough time beating or we, that probably we couldn't beat were the Cavaliers. When, when Kevin Love, Kyrie, and Braun came to town, like, that was the only team that I – that, that, that gave us huge problems. So being, we were super confident against Houston and Golden State and knowing that if we get to the finals, that's going to be our toughest, that's going to be our toughest matchup because we had so many weapons. We had so many things that we could go to. So um, when we're up 3-1, like I was thinking like, man, we, I, had, I think I had said like we five games from winning a championship. Y'all know that, right? Like, like this, is, <laughs> this, is a, this is a time we may never get back. And I guess it went in one end out the others, but like I was thinking that we could we could really win a championship. We were playing at that point in time. But then you end up getting the championship the following year. Where where were you when you got the call to join the Cavs? I was at home. Um, I I had just played a season, so I had I had worked out all summer at the Clippers facility, and basically got a call that they were going to move on. And at the beginning of the summer, they, 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 they were saying they were going to bring me back. And then I worked out all summer there and, and got a call that they were going to move on and had to look, had to look for different opportunities of, of, of where people thought I had value at. And um, where did I go? I went to, I went to Brooklyn with Lionel Hollins, and people I was familiar with, Lionel Hollins, um, Billy King, and they had a younger team but thought that I could I could uh, play a role on. And did a whole training camp. Um, had a had a really good training camp at that. And remember having a conversation with Billy King, like, listen, man, we got to make some moves to um, right right before the deadline, make some moves to be able to absorb you in. But like, this is the team that you're going to be a part of. And, and he said, like, if I I'm going to try to do it right now before the deadline. If I can't, maybe give me a week or two, but I'm going to make it work. And then I went home to just keep training, and then you see that Billy King is, has been um, has been relieved of duties. So then at that point in time, it's like, okay, the team that, that says they're going to bring you in, like, what do you do? Because you've been training this whole time, and, and you're in shape, you're, you're healthy. Like, do you want to just pack it up? And I was like, you know what? I'm going to play my last year of basketball regardless of whatever it is. I'll give it one good try, and um, and after this, I'll just move on. I know that I gave everything I had, and I had a good career, and it is what it is. And so, so me and my agent decided, you know what? Let's let's go, let's go try the G League. Last time you were there, you were there for less than 20 days. You got to call up, um, just keep proving people wrong and and just showing your value. So I went down there, and 20 days went by, and 30 days went by, and two months went by. And I remember going home from a break. And the team thought I wasn't coming back. They just they saw the frustration in my face and the opportunities weren't there. And they were like, listen, they're all calling me like, are you coming back? And I'm like, listen, guys, um, yeah, I'm coming back. But now that y'all keep asking me, now I'm, I'm actually starting to think about whether I'm just going to pack it up because I didn't come to spend a full season in D-League. G-League, I, I, I was looking for an opportunity. And my coach at the point in time, uh, Deion Glover and uh, Otis Smith, um, but like, listen, teams call for you all the time. But at this point in time, just don't give up on these young guys who are you 
you're giving a lot too. And I don't think you know the impact that you're having on their lives um, and on their basketball career. So like, just don't give up, like don't be a quitter. And I took that extremely seriously. So I, um, I went back, finished the season and I had started having conversations with the organization about like how I'm going to move on from basketball and what opportunities are there for me. Um, I had read a, read a book who I think it's who moved the cheese. And I was like, listen, man, mm-hmm. it's time to move on from ba- basketball in a playing capacity, but there's so many other opportunities. So just me being a basketball head that I am, I got home, talked to my wife, like, babe, I'm moving on and, and we're going we gonna to do this a different way. And, and I probably played, I probably played in like three times in the next week. And I was basically still staying in shape, but not knowing it, but just, just doing normal things that I do with basketball. And then I, I had the, one of our last games in the G League was with um, was with Cleveland, and I had asked Damon Jones and talked to T. Lou and like, listen, man, if y'all need a wing, let me know. And they're like, okay. Um, at this point in time, they're saying maybe, but we'll let you know. I totally forgot about those conversations, and then I get a call from from David Griffin and them, and they're like, listen, man, we want to, we, we're thinking about bringing you in. Okay. Um, well, I'm in shape, so it, it is what it is. And then I just the next call was. Um, we're booking a ticket. We're gonna bring you in. Um, the team is adamant about you and just what you what they think as far as LeBron, Tyronn Lue, Kyrie, uh, either Kevin. Like they think that you can to help us, and and this is where um, we see that you can to be a fit for us. So I'm still in shape. I'm still confident. My last game in the G League, I set a record for for Grand Rapids. I scored for like 43. So I'm still I'm I'm more in shape than guys at the end of their bench. So I just just kept that team rolling and just kept just being available for any time they needed me. <laughs> There's a quote from, from Ty Lue that said, uh, yeah, I mean, when I met, when I first met Dante, he was a cocky, arrogant asshole. And <laughs> do, you, do you remember when you first met Ty Lue? I was a freshman in high school, and, and me and him have similar personalities. So, like, an older guy and a younger guy with that type of personality, obviously the older guy is going to look at him like he's an ass. But – like that's to become one of my best friends in this entire world. And um, yeah, we've both grown over the years, but me going to do um, just my standards of what I expect and how hard I work. Like I, I carried a chip on my shoulder that most people didn't, didn't, didn't understand or didn't value, but that's the only thing that allowed me to have that opportunity to play as long as I did. I'm curious, Ben, we, you scored 13 points in the, the season finale there playing 42 minutes for the Cavs. Playoffs comes, you guys are advancing through, and you're a non-factor, right? As 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 expected throughout throughout playoffs. But you get to but you get to the infamous game six. Richard Jefferson's in foul trouble in the first half, and now all of a sudden Ty Lue has to make a decision as to who to play. Take me into that huddle. What's going on there at that time? Well, before that, um, mind you, I played the thirteen. I played I played those forty minutes. But I was in shape, so there was no need to stop that momentum. So I had been gathering guys just to play. And guys were frustrated where they weren't going to play or their minutes and thinking about them. But, guys, we just need to stay in shape because anything can happen. And I've seen it happen in the playoffs. So I'm either training with guys, training with Richard and Channing on treadmill sprints, or I'm organizing the young guys to play three-on-three, four-on-four, full court. Um, Just finding different ways to just have fun and to stay in shape because anybody can be called on, and I've seen it before. So that was a part of um, what my presence was going to be on that team. So I, I kept in shape, and I kept a, a part of all scouting reports, and, and I had input on some, some, some stuff. So 
like I was always in huddles and always prepared to be able to contribute because guys would come to me and ask me for what I thought and what I saw, whether it be LeBron, whether it be Iman, JR, RJ. And I had seen different opportunities for different people. So I'm like, I'm, I'm coaching guys through like how they can have an input, impact, um, defensive matchups, whether it be transitioning to what other people's defensive matchups would be for you in Bron's case and how I see them trying to affect you. So we get to game six, and I played sparingly minutes, like um, garbage minutes, but I'm still in shape, period, like to, to, to play, and I've still been watching this game intensely. So I have been telling RJ, like, listen, stop relying on just sitting in the corner. Yeah, there's a healthy amount, but you guys got to cut off the ball and keep moving on the weak side not to not give them a um, just a picture that they can rely on just knowing that you're back there. So when we're in that huddle, and I know that they have three fouls, and I'm just in the huddle period just, just doing what I do, um, T. Lou is going over how and just speaking out loud, and Tyrese said, put Dante in. And I was like, oh, shit. And, and then Brown was like, yeah, put, him, put Dante in. Dante's ready. He's prepared. Yeah, we're going with Dante. And she was like, all right, cool. So that's how it, that's how it transpired. Like, I, my teammates vouched for me more than – not saying that T. Lou didn't vouch for me, but he was trying to figure out, like, how we're going to do this. But my teammates stepped up and were like, listen, Dante, Dante, put Dante in. Dante can handle whatever they're going to throw at him. And that's, that's how I got into the game. Did Draymond – punch on the when he, when he punched LeBron in the nuts I remember at the time LeBron saying it, it's the most I think it was either LeBron I think LeBron had said it or or others had said it's the most disrespectful thing you could ever do to another player step over him and step over him is one thing and then and then catch him there do you find it hard to believe or is it okay with you that those two are close now um I it it, 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 it definitely happens because people don't understand your off-the-court demeanor and your on-court demeanor are two separate things. And how you operate um, between those lines is totally different than how you operate outside of those lines. Um, so you can create, create a friendship even though you've competed at the highest level. And mm-hmm. those guys are two of the greatest athletes in the world. They compete at extremely high levels. They bring crazy things to the game. But they're also dope people off the court. So we don't hold, we don't always hold those grudges off the court like people think we do because that's our job. That's not, that's not yeah. everything about life. Okay, so if that's so if that's the case, you got to tell me this then. Draymond Green earlier in your career getting interviewed, and you <laughs> you walk by and give him the bump, and and end up getting getting fined for it. What was what was the story behind behind what happened there with you two? So I sat on the bench the whole game, and I was getting kind of ticked off because of the demeanor that we were having in Golden State. Um, and in typical Draymond fashion, every time they get up, he starts talking trash and yelling at the bench. And, and we would just tuck our heads, and that's just not my personal demeanor. So I was mm-hmm. already upset. And they beat the brakes off of us. They talked crazy to us all game. And I'm and, and feeling that we're better than them. Like, we just didn't show up that game. So I'm already ticked off just on how we just – we didn't stand up for for ourselves, and I, and I was mad at each other. But then DJ was – as you guys probably know, you when you walk off the court and go to state, everybody walks in the same direction. And to get off the court, you have to like kind of like funnel into that, that tunnel in the back. So me and DJ walked in, and I was trying to actually cheer DJ up, and I was kind of playing with him. Like, man, 
Danger right there. I should just bump the hell out of him and, and knock him over. And DJ was like, chill, man, chill, chill, let that go. And I got a smile at DJ, which I was trying to get. So <laughs> as we're, as you probably know, walking two people side by side, like you tend to bump into each other. Like it happens all the time. And, and me trying, and I, was, I, was I serious? Half serious. But in me trying to walk next to DJ and walk and like avoid it, DJ bumped me and I bumped him. And I, and, and, as I bumped him, I, we never looked back, and I was like, oh, damn, I really bumped him. He was like, man, stop playing, man. Get out of here, man. Got another smile out of him. We moved on. Not knowing until I knew I hit him, but, like, I didn't care at that point in time whether I hit him or not. But I didn't, I didn't kind of, like, mean to hit him. Like, I tried to avoid him bumping the DJ who's huge and then end up hitting him. So I'm like, all right, cool, whatever. It is what it is. Uh, I was already mad at him. When we get back into all the right. locker room, one of, one of the one of the – Reporters was like, listen, Drayvon is like kind of like pumping this whole you hit him on purpose and, and is only they asked him, I asked him about it and he's only going to speak on camera about it. He won't speak to the, the print media. And I was like, oh, because so, he's trying to get you fined. Oh, okay, cool. And oh. DJ was like, listen, man, don't worry about it. Like, I got you. I was like, all right, cool. If I, if I get fined, I get fined. But like, I didn't really mean it, but I did. It is what it is. I, I play too much. That's, a, that's what I was talking about, too. You play too much, Dante. <laughs> Dante, we want to get you on some, some quick hitters. You've given us a ton of time. We appreciate it, and then we'll, we'll let you out of here. And now I don't know how much I can trust my, my buddy, uh, Graham Bunn, who, who plays uh, pickup with you now, because um, yeah. he had helped maybe contribute to that early story uh, Noah was asking you about, about, about chugging beer. So I, I got to talk to him. But he did want me to ask you, first of all, about how about Jay Cole training to make an NBA roster. And then if you think that Jay Valentine would follow suit, because apparently he's been giving you problems in these pickup runs that you guys have had. Okay. The second part of that question is that doesn't make any sense. Jay Valentine <laughs> is not giving me problems, but I go play pickup with Graham and them out of the pure love. And I don't really compete. It's my only way to get a cardio. So they want me to be serious. And I can't really be serious when I'm the tallest person on the court. Um, like, I don't get any pleasure out of just, like, beating up guys that don't really play basketball. And it's just – it's hard for me to be competitive because I know these guys just don't have it in them naturally. However, J. Cole, I've seen him work out with my guy Chris Brickley in New York. He seems like – he competes with, with pros all the time. And, like, he set a goal for himself. And I believe in the power of people, like, who are – minded enough to just set a goal and, and put their mind to something. I believe we can do anything we put our minds to. Um, he's, play, he's played basketball at a high level before, um, and he thinks he can compete. So who am I to tell him that he can't? Like, that's only for him and, and how far he's willing to push himself. And if he can compete at the high level, the wing position is a, is a tough position to compete at. They make so many athletic skilled wings right now. That has always been the, the position where there's a plethora of guys just a, the opportunity and, and taking advantage of the opportunity once you get it. So if he gets an opportunity and he takes advantage of it and he, and he has to do stuff, it, it, it can happen. Anything can happen when you put your mind to it. The championship celebration, what's the moment in time that you replay in your head more often than others? Championship celebration, um, just a genuine love from the Cleveland, Cleveland City fans. Um, you you, you got to be a part of a – 
a parade where people actually can touch you and they're just patting you on the back. Like, there's usually guardrails for parades. Cleveland hadn't seen anything like this before, so it was just you just driving down the street. It took way longer than it was supposed to. Um, of people just just so happy and just so appreciative, and they're just literally patting you on the back and saying thank you. And that genuine love is something I'll, I'll never forget. Now, what about the Vegas portion? Vegas portion? Listen, man, like that, I heard that that was coming, just being in the right place at the right time. And that, it just moved so fast. We remember, it was a 2 o'clock game, so that means we had like a 9 a.m. bus and an 8 a.m. Uh, breakfast. I remember I went to church before that, early service. And, um, like, that day just sped by so fast. By the time the game is over, it's 4 or 5. We hadn't eaten since 8. And then your pictures and celebrating and, whatever you champagne or whatever it is. And by the time you get on the plane, it's like, where is the food? And, and I, I remember Dan Gilbert kicking all wives and, and females off the plane because that's, this is how he was celebrating. And then it clicked like, oh, yeah, he, he's dead serious about going to Vegas. And um, we, um, we got on the plane and landed, and it's like 11 p.m. And they're like, listen, man, just be on the bus by 4. Like, are you serious? Like, nothing else? Just be on the bus by 4. And we just had a, we had a great time, man, and, and time just kind of flew by because we're having fun and we're in the moment. But you got you, you, when you're when you're hanging out with a bunch of the great guys who, who who just made something happen when people thought you weren't weren't going to be able to, man. Like it just it just flew by so fast, so many moments. But we just had a we had a great time just being in each other's presence and just celebrating the fact that we did what we thought we could do. Your son Tanner is is an up-and-coming player himself uh i think a ninth grader right now uh yeah. if that's correct the, the so dante yeah. i hear he can really go what has been what have been some of the main messages you've tried to tell him about what what he's about to embark on and, and advice you can give my, my, ter- my son is way more skilled than i ever was at his age um but one thing i've been able to do is compete at a high level just because of my my attitude and just just how I approach being competitive um, and instill that message in him. Uh, he's all, he's, he's learned how to work and derive the work of it just by watching me, uh, just being in the type of situations and just being blessed to be around so many skillful players and see how they work. So he's, he's developed that type of work ethic and appreciation for the game like that. Um, but just to, just to teach him how to compete and, and how to look at the game systematically or how he can be, a part of a game without even having to have the ball. I was just trying to teach him that and give him that because I think if you have skill and you learn how to compete at a high level and learn how to, to, to actually be a part of a game without having the ball, I think that just magnifies your talent. So just, just teach him how to compete in those areas. After you had that great playoffs defensively with the Nuggets, you signed a four-year deal with the Pacers, and it was, it was Larry Bird doing – doing the recruiting, talking about how big of a defensive presence you were. What is Larry Bird like as a as an executive trying to sign a player? Larry's just Larry. Larry's a, Larry the legend is the same way he is as a player. He's super competitive. Um, and now he's not super serious, but you 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 and that does that rarely raises his voice. And he was he just sold me on the fact that he's trying to build a team that is going to compete on both ends of the floor, that's going to be tough, and he thought I could lead that charge. And and uh, he, 
when Larry Bird wants you, like that's something that's hard to turn down. I was leaving a group of guys who like I really was had a, a dope bond with, and I wanted to, to see how far we could go after having a disappointing loss in the conference finals and thinking that we could win that. But you got Larry Bird talking to you, um, offering you uh, uh, an opportunity in a, in a year before a lockout, so where money had kind of dried up and there weren't that many opportunities. But you have a guy who, who, who's seen it all, who's competed at a high level, and wants you to help lead in an attack, and it's something I couldn't turn down. What are you doing day-to-day now? Uh, day-to-day, I am running a construction company that's focused on affordable housing. And uh, we've had two main focuses of um, California and Florida. Um, we have like 1,800 units in, in, in our pipeline over the next 18 months. But focus on the affordable living um, lifestyle of people who are the fabric of our society, whether that be teachers, doctors, police officers, people who have everyday jobs that are sometimes forced out of living in, in cool and dope environments and dope places, having to commute far because of the, the rental rates that are just amongst us um, and living where you work at. So now we're focused on just providing dope spaces for, for people in the affordable space um, so it's not just a box. It's just it's, an, it's a place where they can um, appreciate living, have confidence uh, that, that, it, that it spills into everything in life. Dante, I, I thought I was done with the questions I had for you, but I forgot I had to ask you about about your about your wife. Every person that we at least when I reached out who was was talking about you, first thing they said was just how incredible she is. Um, what's what's her future look like? What do you what do you expect from her in the next five to ten years? Um, that that evolves um, on a day to day basis. My wife right now is the chief diversity officer for the Academy of Music, which is basically the Grammys. Um, She's the first ever chief diversity officer. Um, and she's been pioneering in this diversity inclusion space, a space that has gotten a lot of attention over the over the past couple of months. But she's been leading this attack um, over over years now. And, and she's probably the best in the space. Um, she's lending it to music because music has been lending her time and her efforts to music because music has been super influential in her life. But she's worked for Google, for President Obama. She's worked for... Um, uh, Russell Simmons and, and, and that whole Def Jam empire. Um, and she just does dope things of just trying to, to, to gain more access and opportunity for the people who are who are not appreciated on how they make companies go. Um, but she's, she's entertained political roles. She's entertained just all types of opportunities are in front of her to just affect our society and make uh, this world we live in a better place. I appreciate what, what both of you are doing. Our final question is always, since it's the Rejecting the Screen podcast, it's one of those back-of-the-bus questions that the guys used to ask each other in the 90s, and they say, all right, well, you can't pick Jordan. So reject the screen, go ISO, get you a bucket. Who would you choose to do that from any of the teammates you've ever had at any level of basketball? Get you a bucket or or to get us a bucket? That's a different question. To get himself a bucket. Ah. Reject the screen, go ISO. Mellow. Mellow, Mellow gets you a bucket in crunch time. Reject the screen, go and, go and get it. We like it. I would have to say LeBron to get us a bucket to make the right play, to get, mm-hmm. to get our team a bucket. Um, but then that's a tough one, too. I, I would say Mellow, but then right behind him at 1B is Kyrie. Kyrie will go get you a bucket in the, in, in, in the crunch, as he showed before. But 
he'll go get you a bucket, put his head down, and 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 take that opportunity on um, head first. So it would have to be between Melo and and Kyrie, but I say I'll, I'll go with Melo. Dante, we really appreciate all the time. Great yeah. stories. Best of luck to you and your family. Continued good health. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. As always, another guest giving us way more time than we initially let the guests know that we were going to ask for. We appreciate all the time from Dante Jones. We always we always say it'll be about 60 minutes. That was, yeah, closer to 90. So much there. That's the that's the hard part with guys like Dante Jones because not only not only does he have so many life experiences at home and then his career and college and and NBA but also just the way he's a storyteller and how engaging he is it was uh that was a pretty awesome conversation. Right, could we have spent more time then on the Cavs should we've gotten to that earlier? It's like it's honestly it's like um breaking down a game as soon as it happens. So in my mm-hmm. head right now, I'm thinking, oh, maybe we shouldn't have spent so much time on Duke, but there was great stuff about JJ and a bunch of NBA players. And it's not like we're, we're talking about players that nobody's ever heard of. It's all stories yeah. about guys and, and himself from, from an era that we grew up with. Yeah. And everything that I had wanted to ask him about some of the big moments in his, in his career he certainly uh, was was pretty forthright. He was very candid about what was taking place, and whether it's the Draymond Green bump or the Kobe stuff, um, he's been involved in a lot. But spectacular career is a defensive standout. Like, if you didn't enjoy watching Dante Jones play defense, like you, you don't really appreciate basketball on that level. Well, and also go back and just Google Dante Jones dunks. Oh. <laughs> I mean the one the one against Virginia, oh. and he was saying that like the fact that that was an f u to Coach K. <laughs> yes, his own coach, his own coach. All right, so go back and listen to all the other episodes of Rejecting the Screen, the Going ISO edition. Go back and listen to that Earl Watson one from January. Former teammate of Dante's in Indiana. I mean, we didn't even look. I'm yeah, an hour and a half is a long time, but. We didn't ask about Paul George as a rookie. Lance yeah. Stevenson is a rookie in Indiana. Like, really nothing about Indiana. Frank Vogel was his head coach. Now he's coaching LeBron. And Dante played with LeBron. Mm-hmm. There, there are so many different ways to go. But go back and t- take a listen to that Earl Watson episode from January. That was, that was right after Kobe had passed. And so not just the stories about Kobe, but the stories about Hubie Brown and, and so much more from Earl's basketball career. And also... Every other one on the rejecting the screen going ISO. It's very easy to find on the feed. All sorts of other good things going on on the Locked On Podcast Network. Locked On NBA five days a week. Hollinger and Duncan. John Hollinger and Nate Duncan with their unique takes. Chad Ford's NBA big board. Also Locked On Fantasy Hoops with Josh Lloyd. And your team every day, which is the Locked On Podcast Network. This episode of rejecting the screen was brought to you by rockauto.com. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all your parts, your car will ever need. Follow us on Instagram at rejecting underscore the underscore screen. 
And I know you're listening at this point because I know you like to hear the music at the end. And, and when I say you, I don't mean Adam because I'm looking right at Adam. I know he's yeah, still paying yeah. attention. That was weird. But I know that you're still weird. listening because you like the music at the end. So follow us on Instagram at rejecting underscore the underscore screen. Adam's on Twitter at NaysmithLives. I'm at Noah Kostov, C-O-S-L-O-V. Adam? Thanks, pal. You are the best.